All right, turn in your Bibles. <clears throat> For the last time in this series, at least, to Genesis chapter 24. Genesis chapter 24. We look tonight at yet another title, as we did really with this whole chapter. Uh, the title comes right out of the text. What man is this that walketh in the field to meet us? Uh, this, I, I chose this title, this verse for a title, because it really frames the typology really, really well. And this entire message is about typology tonight. I know we've, we've kind of touched on that with each one of these parts. But uh, as we look at verses 62 through 67, it says, And Isaac came from the way of the well, uh, Lahiroi, for he dwelt in the south country. This first we've seen really mention of Isaac since Mount Moriah back in Genesis 22. Uh, this doesn't mean that Isaac hasn't been impacted by the things that have happened since Genesis 22. He's lost his mother. We remember that. Uh, here we see Abraham trying to find a bride for him. And, uh, and both his mother uh, and that situation come up here in the text. It says here, For he dwelled in the south country, and Isaac went out to, me uh, to meditate in the field of, at the eventide. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, the camels were coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she lighted off the camel. For she had said unto the servant, What man is this that walketh in the field to meet us? And the servant had said, It is my master. Therefore she took a veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all things that he had done. And Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent, which is the first we've seen mention of Sarah since her death, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her, and Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we seek to close out this chapter, the study on chapter 24 of Genesis, Father, we ask your, uh, your mercy upon us, Lord, that you would <clears throat> remove the distractions of our hearts and minds, Father, that you'd impress upon us these types, the importance of this chapter, Lord, for so very many reasons, Father, and I pray that we do indeed uh, at the conclusion of this in our hearts and minds, go back to verse 1 and, and run back through this chapter and all the things that you have, have proven for us and illustrated for us throughout this study. Uh, what a great blessing it has been, not only for typology, but for understanding the importance for a young man and his bride, as well as a bride and her young man. We thank you, Father, again for, uh, for sitting us down, for presenting these things for us, Father. We ask, Lord, again, that you would illustrate these things that you would give us, uh, unction, Father, to both preach and be preached to, that, Father, we go throughout the remainder of this week as strong witnesses of the mercy that you've shown to your people. And we ask, Lord, all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We should note again, no mention is given here to the time that passed on the road between the house of Bethuel and the faithful servant's master. We saw this when he was first sent, after Abraham uh, had for him to put his hand beneath his thigh and to take the oath. Uh, nothing is really discussed about the journey. <clears throat> that might not seem like a big deal <clears throat> excuse me, to us, but again, the likelihood of him tra traversing the same terrain of Mount Moriah or something very near that would probably seem pretty important to us based on what we saw in Genesis 22, but that's not the focus of this story. How the servant got there didn't matter. And I think it's important for us to hear that because we get really caught up in how we get to where we're going. All the little hills and valleys in between here and glory land, we get real caught up. We get real bogged down. We get labored and worn out and vexed by these days in the valley. But beloved, that's not what the story's about. The story's about the cross, if you're born again. 
That's your story now. What the Lord did when he pronounced, it is finished, that is your story now. How you get there has already been taken care of. Do what he's asked. Be found watching and waiting and working. Because the story isn't about the, all the things that happen in between. It's already been secured. And praise the Lord for that. We don't hear about the journey back because Rebecca said yes. What is there for Isaac to tell as he's our, our writer here of this portion of Genesis? What is there for Isaac to tell? What is there that would enlighten us or change the story in any possible way? It's not about the journey on the road. The calling of Isaac's bride took precedence of our studies thus far, and here we have the climactic presentation of her to the bridegroom. The first thing I want to look at is the servant, and this is really the last time that we look at the servant, so it's the shortest point of this outline. As a type of the holy comforter, or what we uh, know in the, uh, in the original language to be referred to as the paraclete in the New Testament, one called alongside of, He's a type of that comforter. He's a type as one called alongside of, and he accompanies the bride through the wilderness of the world, no doubt speaking of his master and his master's son all along the way. Then here in, the, in these verses, at this latter portion of the chapter, he serves as the presenter of the bride-to-be, confirming one to another. Uh, if she was just some stranger, uh, Isaac might be hopeful that this would be his bride. She might be hopeful that he's the bridegroom. But there's no room for error. This faithful servant was sent along to bring her all the way back to Isaac. And this faithful servant shall not fail. Our paraclete, capital P, our uh, great comforter that was promised in Acts 1.8, the Holy Spirit, he who is represented here by the faithful servant, will also not leave us wandering will also not leave us in a dreadful uh, haze, so short of the goal, but so close. He shall bring us all the way to the foot of our Savior. When we see the Lord Jesus coming, coming as the clouds part, as we see him coming through, uh, not in the field as we see here, because he won't be setting foot on the earth until that great final battle, but as we uh, see him walking through the field of clouds, rather, to come to us, the Holy Spirit will be the one that confirms that trumpet's for you. The Holy Spirit will be the one that ignites our hearts with rejoicing. He's coming. He's coming. That's your groom. That's your groom, bride. Are you ready? Are you ready tonight to meet your Savior, your Lord Jesus Christ? Perhaps we don't, re we don't visit that question nearly enough. Are you ready this day? I think you all know me well enough that I, I've got this to do and that to do and so on and so forth. But I'm ready. I'm ready to go home right now. The Holy Spirit were to ignite in me a rejoicing and say, there he is, that's him, go up yonder. I'd probably look like a fool, but I'd be swimming through the air. Let's go. Let's go right now. Yes, I'm ready. Leave no, uh, no hurt unforgiven. Leave nothing in your wake. You'll take nothing with you. Beloved, are you ready to meet your master in the air this night. That's a hard thing. We're four days past that Friday 5 o'clock that I mentioned on Sunday. Four days past. Are we ready to go home? Are we ready for that whistle to sound? I want us to read through these verses with uh, hearing Rebecca's enthusiasm. She lifts up her eyes 
saw Isaac, she lighted off the camel. She didn't look over yonder and say, well, I don't know. Is that him? Is it worth getting down off this camel? Have any of you been on a camel? I mean, they're way up there. There's no light thing, pardon the pun, to light off a camel. But she lights off the camel. She says unto the servant, What man is this that walketh in the field to meet us? I'm betting she said that with excitement, with enthusiasm. This could be the one. This could be the one. Do we wake up each day and say, This could be the day. This could be the day. I think most of us probably say, This should be the day. How much worse could it get? But do we actually say and believe this could be the day? I don't want to dwell too much longer on the faithful servant, but before we bid him farewell, know that he had a great meaningful purpose in this chapter. Know that though he went without name, he was very, very important to this story. I think sometimes as preachers, we get caught up in teaching the attributes of God, as I'll be doing next week, and we enthusiastically enjoy presenting uh, messages of exegesis upon the Lord Jesus upon the Son of God, but we don't spend near enough time on that which we understand the least about, that being the Holy Spirit himself. That's not an it. It is a person of God. And it is one of great value. If it weren't, he wouldn't have been sent in the Lord's place there in Acts 1. When he says he's going up yonder, he says the Comforter will come. The Comforter will not only come, but will dwell within the believer. He will give utterance as to what we are to pray. It is he that is, uh, is given reference to that will lead our hearts. When, when, when we talked on Sunday, or, or possibly the Sunday before, but I think it was this last Sunday, talking about persecution, the Lord said, uh, give no concern to what you'll say during the persecution, how you will answer for him, because he is what you're being persecuted for, he being the light, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, who will provide that. And it's not mere inspiration. It's comfort, just as it says, one called alongside of. We should be grateful for that. Because though our salvation is secure in Christ, though we can't be lost, we could be most miserable without the Comforter. All these things going on. Imagine being totally dependent on Steve and I to just keep telling you all it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. Well, he and I wouldn't believe it without the comforter, so we wouldn't be saying it either. We would be most miserable without he, the comforter. The second thing I want to look at is Isaac, and, and oh, well, we've missed Isaac. We see here, as we'd mentioned before, that he does serve as a type of Christ. Uh, we haven't seen him since Genesis 22, which is a picture of Christ, Mount Moriah being very close to Calvary and, and typology as well as geography. But it also represents or pictures how Christ went to the cross. And that's really the last of his earthly ministry until he comes again. Yes, he was resurrected, but he came unto the church. That was the purpose of his resurrection period, which we'll get into in greater detail in our Sunday afternoon studies. As he waits, he prepares a place for her. And there's going to be a lot of New Testament references here, so uh, you might want to jot them down. You might want to turn with me if, you, if, if you're up for it. But John 14, 3, Jesus says the same. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. 
And towards the end of this outline, we'll talk about where Isaac went, where he went to prepare a place for her, which is a very interesting discussion too. To Rebecca, Isaac was like Christ. And Rebecca, again, is picturing the bride, is picturing uh, the church in many ways, but as we understand it, the bride of Christ is, is a little bit different than just being the church. So uh, if you are one to dive into commentators, be careful. Common hyphen taters are exactly what they say they are. They're common. They are sometimes the opinion of man. And not everything that a commentator says is the bride of Christ is indeed the bride of Christ. And again, we'll get into that in more detail shortly as well. How he pictures Christ to Rebecca, he was promised before his coming. This is likely all the faithful servant talked about. Wait till you meet Isaac. Wait till you meet his dad, Abraham, my master, one of great faith, a friend of God, a prophet of God. Finally appeared, humanly speaking, right at the appointed time. Galatians 4, verses 4 through 5, says, But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Isaac was conceived and born miraculously. Of course, so was the Lord. Luke 1, verse 35. And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Isaac was assigned an appropriate name by God before his birth. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, So was the Lord Jesus. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, or Yahshua which means Jehovah is salvation, for he shall save his people from their sins. Isaac's not really referenced as one who saves his people, but he is the promised lineage. He's the promised seed to Abraham with a great multitude of promised seed to come from his loins. Isaac was offered up and sacrificed by his father. Not a perfect picture because he's, uh, he's redeemed or atoned for before, uh, before fully sacrificed. But as we mentioned many times, he's as good as dead. He's bound above the flames and below the, below the, the blade. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, speaking of Jesus, he is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the world. Isaac was himself obedient unto death. Philippians 2, verse 8. Jesus being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Isaac was brought back from the dead to be head of a great nation. Now, we can see this and think, well, I mean, literally, he wasn't quickened. Literally, he wasn't given life, but he was. Think again of the perspective of those servants at the base of the mountain. They're going up to sacrifice something. And they didn't take a lamb with them. Even Isaac said, where is the sacrifice? When they left the mountain, it's sort of like uh, Schrodinger's cat, right? And the cat's dead or the cat is alive. It's 100% both until you open the box and look, says psychologists. But understand the situation here. Isaac was as good as dead. Isaac wasn't going to save himself, and then Abraham wasn't going to be unfaithful to God. So Isaac was dead and brought back to life. Ephesians 1, verses 19 through 23. 
says, And what is the exceeding greatness of his power, speaking of Jesus, to usward who believe, according to the working of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. And hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. I don't know how, tangent, I don't know how anybody reads Ephesians 1 verses 19 through 23 and convinces themselves that they have to invite or accept Christ. I don't know how anybody reads these verses and says, well, yes, he's ahead of all these things, principality, power, might, dominion, and every name that's mentioned in this world and the one to come, but he waits on me. He waits for me to grant permission. He waits until I'm good and ready. No, he doesn't. He makes you good and ready. He doesn't knock at the door. He saves lives. There's no, not too many firemen saved lives from a burn, people in a burning building waiting at the door for it to be opened. There's a lot of heresy in this world. A lot of heresy in this world. And these types begin to fall apart when we put them against what the world's assumption is. I don't know about y'all. I, I, get, I get riled up sometimes when they call it BCE instead of AD and BC. I get riled up when I see them remove the Lord from any little thing. They don't hesitate today to take his name in vain, but they don't leave his name where it was rightfully put to begin with. We ought to be riled up about that. Our Lord deserves honor. He will be honored. He will be praised. Every knee shall bow. As we heard on Sunday, every man is to repent. Every knee shall bow. And again, commentators will say, well, he doesn't save a man against his will. I don't read every knee shall bow as to be something that they invite us to do. It's what the Lord will command and we shall do. What a picture. What a picture. And the last type that we see in this particular set of verses is Rebecca. As I mentioned, she, she typifies the bride of Christ. And, and I, uh, for time's sake, won't be able to go into the full definition of the bride of Christ. Certainly, uh, Milburn's book on the bride is coming is a wonderful reference. If you don't have it already, certainly uh, you want to get your hands on that. But I would ask that as we go through this outline, as we go through these points, don't just assume you're of the bride. Don't just assume because you're a, B a Berean Baptist in Mantachi, Mississippi, you're of the bride. I hope you are. I hope I am. But let's not just make that assumption because, again, it distorts the typology for us to have any other definition of what the bride of Christ is than what the Lord God had intended for it to be. 2 Corinthians 11.2 Paul says here that, speaking of God, saying, For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. The bride of Christ will be a chaste virgin. She will be a wife of one, not a wife of both uh, Beelzebub and God, 
a wife of one. John chapter 3, verse 29, He that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. And there's other verses, certainly, that we can quote as well that prove that there will be those in attendance to the wedding of Jesus Christ and the bride of Christ. And those won't be the heathen sinners that will never set foot in the kingdom of heaven. Those will be others who are not in the bride. Again, uh, with more time, we could extrapolate, extrapolate that further, but for this particular lesson, that, that's going to have to do. She pictures the Christian believer in many ways. Her marriage was planned long before she knew about it. That might mean she wasn't in control of all the things, that she didn't control her destiny, that she didn't control fate, and she didn't flip a coin. This was planned for her. Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 6, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, not according to what we would prefer, we wouldn't prefer it, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the Beloved." Rebecca was necessary for the accomplishment and completion of God's purpose. A little bit further down in Ephesians 1, verse 23, says, Which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Rebecca was to glory in her husband, which is here typifying Jesus, but literally Isaac. She used to glory in her husband. John 17, verses 22 through 26 says, And the glory which thou gavest me, Jesus speaking here to the Father, the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved me as thou hast loved me, as thou hast, <laughs> try that one again, I in them and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Father, I will that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me. For thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee, and these have known that thou hast sent me. And I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare it, the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them and I in them. This is not a contradiction against Ephesians 1. It says here that the Lord, uh, the Lord Jesus was loved before the foundation of the world by God the Father. Well, what is the redeeming factor for the born-again believer? How is it that God sees us now? He sees his Son. He sees the one he did love before and still loves before the foundation of the world as he looks upon us, because we are covered in the righteous blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't contradict Ephesians 1, it confirms it. It is that which is applied to the born-again believer. Rebecca immediately left all to go to the Son, loving him before she saw him and rejoicing with unspeakable joy. Uh, red alert, we have to stop again. 
Please don't just assume that you're in the bride of Christ, and here's why. Today, a bride does not fully depart from mother and father and go unto her husband as one flesh. She tends to take a little bit of it with her. She tends to also gather in as hens uh, would gather their chicks a little bit of the world, a little bit of the opinion, a little bit of all of these things shoved in to a very narrow keyhole, which is the position of a wife. And she comes into the to uh, roost with her husband and says, I have to work. I have an opinion. I have strong feelings. And not that these things are necessarily bad, but it breaks down and crumbles the godly foundation of the home. The man is to be the head of the house. Men, you're not getting off easy here. You're called to lead. You're called to lead. So before we just assume, oh, we're in the bride of the Christ, we're born again, we went in the right water, in the right building, with the right pastor, and therefore we are the bride. Have you abstained from all appearances of evil? Can we genuinely say we understand what a godly marriage is? I hesitate to, to give illustrations for my children of what marriage should be by pointing at anything in the world. We have distorted, destroyed, and ruined marriage. And this isn't just an American thing. This is what man has done. Lamech sang and wrote a poem about it in the beginning of this book. It's not new, but again, we've talked about this before, about what Satan gains when he breaks down our definitions of what marriage is. This is one of the biggest ones. Our understanding of the bride of Christ is distorted because we assume we know what a bride is. And sometimes it's distorted because we assume we know what the Messiah or the Christ is. When we are to worship God, how are we to worship? In spirit and in truth. How are we to understand the word of God? Spirit and truth. We can't bring our opinions, we can't bring uh, out, outward interpretations or applications to understanding God's Word. God's Word defines and explains and exercises God's Word. It expounds upon itself. It grows in a, in a, in a way in which it absolutely is a living Word. But again... To study the bride of Christ and even to understand the types of the bride of Christ, we can't bring our understanding of what a 2022 marriage is. A 2022 marriage is so full of options now, you'd think it was some high-class SUV. Can I get him with sunroof? And can I get him with a CD player? And can I get her with an MP3 hookup? And can I, can I get all these things in electric or hybrid? And can I turn it in when I'm done with it? When I've good and worn it out, this is how we treat marriage now. This is not how the bride of Christ will be. This is not how the, 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 the wonderful marriage of Christ to the bride will be. It's not how God had interpreted marriage to be. It's what we have done to it. I digress. She immediately left all to go to the son. We know that uh, Laban and her mother... They were hoping for just another 10 days. She went. She left it all behind, loving him before she saw him and rejoicing with unspeakable joy. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8 says, whom having, now, whom having not seen, ye love, in whom though now ye see him not, yet believing ye rejoice with joy unspeakable 
and full of glory. Rebekah journeyed through the wilderness to meet him, guided by the servant or the Holy Spirit. Again, 1 Peter chapter three or chapter one rather three verses nine. First Peter chapter one verses three through nine. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible. Again, these are words that define a marriage in God's eyes. An inheritance incorruptible undefiled and that fadeth not away reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last time wherein ye greatly rejoice though now for a season if need be ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth Though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, ye love, and whom, though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Rebecca was also, in turn, loved by and united forever to the Son. In this case, Isaac, but again, as we know what Isaac pictures, and we know that what Rebekah pictures, we see in the New Testament confirmation of this same relationship through with, with Jesus Christ and his bride. Ephesians 5, verses 26 through 27, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. We see in Revelation seven letters written to churches. Uh, and, and we could paraphrase and say that the Lord was uh, having John write these letters to straighten them out. But there's a lot of identifying markers in those letters that might fall on our heads as well. But what the Lord describes here is one that he sanctifies, one that he cleanses, one that he has preserved throughout the dark ages, preserved through the modern age, through the industrial age, through this crazy age of enlightenment, and even through these, uh, these new roaring 20s that we now find ourselves in, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, his true church with the true authority for which he started and was built upon him as a foundation is found again preserved. Do we understand that it's against all odds that we are here? Against all odds. And if we extrapolate it out through uh, basic math, I was going to use common math, but that sounds too much like that common core thing, but through basic math and the assumption that most will likely live their 70 good years and then be called home, it's easy to see this church even extinguished through the process of time. And yet... The Word of God preserves. The Word of God purifies. The Word of God sanctifies. The Word of God cleanses. And we continue to see throughout all the ages, as, as we read through uh, even that Baptist history devotional that I've quoted a, a time or two, we read through men who thought they knew the truth, and yet they were corrected by the Word of God, and they sought proper authority to do it the right way. That works against man's pride 100%. Why would man ever do that? 
Ladies, do men typically say they're wrong? Of course not. And men, do they ever apologize? Of course not. It's not in our nature. And yet, the promise that God lays out in his word is found to be true. 1 Thessalonians 4.17 Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together. This caught up is, of course, where we get uh, the term rapture. With them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. So not only preserved through time against every age of man, but preserved after time, if you'll allow me to use that phrase, after the time of man on earth, preserved ever with the Lord. Revelation 19, verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife hath made herself ready. Some things to note before we leave Genesis 24. The opening of our text says that Isaac came from the way of the well uh, Lahiroi, for he dwelt in the south country. Lahiroi means well of the living one seeing me, and we've already seen this well. I wish I could ask anybody if they remember, other than Steve. I'm sure he knows. But we've already seen this well in Genesis. This well was west of Kadesh, south of Israel, and it was in Genesis 16, verses 6 through 14. And I ask if you're in Genesis to go ahead and turn over there uh, or make a mark on your, uh, your page for Genesis 24 that we have seen this before. In Genesis 16, starting in verse 6, says, When Sarai dealt hardly with, uh, and this speaking of Hagar, she fled from her face. And the angel of the Lord found her by a fountain of water in the wilderness, by the fountain in the way, of, uh, in the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, Sarah's maid, Whence camest thou, and whither wilt thou go? And she said, I flee from the face of my mistress Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, Return to thy mistress, and submit thyself unto her hands. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, I will multiply thy seed exceedingly, that it shall not be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, Behold, thou art with child, and shalt bear a son, and shalt call his name Ishmael, because the Lord hath heard thy affliction. And he will be a wild man. His hand will be against every man, and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. And she called the name of the, of the Lord that spake unto her, Thou God seest me. For she said, Have I also looked after him that seeth me? Wherefore the well was called Be'er uh, Lahiroi. Behold, it's between Kadesh and Beret. This is a providential reminder, almost a poetic providential reminder for the reader that Ishmael is still out there, that this well already had some experiences and God had already been there. God had already uh, spoken in this very same place. And we really see Lahiroi one other time, and that's uh, in the next chapter, I believe, and this is where Isaac and Rebekah will now uh, head forth to set up camp. What a wonderful book. What a wonder, I mean, because so many of us could get to the end of Genesis 24 and just, <sighs> the Lord united with his bride. I mean, the, the very last phrase we see here is that he's comforted after his mother's death. And then we've got this subtle reminder in the text of Lahiroi, of Hagar, of Ishmael, and the promise of trouble coming from this lineage and we'll see that very soon as well. Now, uh, we also see in the coming chapter, Abraham getting remarried. 
We also see more children coming forth uh, for Abraham. Uh, so there's a lot of other uh, things uh, to note as well. But Isaac doesn't lose his position. Isaac doesn't lose his inheritance. Isaac doesn't lose his importance. One final note to, to, to maybe jot down. Isaac takes Rebekah to Sarah's tent, which would have been vacant for around three years since her death. And she was to stay there until they were married and then move to her husband's tent, uh, which is near Lahiroi. Uh, so you see a lot of foreshadowing. Uh, if, this was, if this was just a writing for us to just uh, ponder over, it is the most perfect writing for us to consider because the Lord is, is just perfectly good in how he lays all these things out. I, again, encourage you to go back to verse 1 of, of this very long, the longest chapter in Genesis. Uh, see where we've come from through this journey. See how the faithful servant was used. See again this typology now that we've seen a, a more complete understanding of it and understand this entire process and that uh, in the process of time, where we are, on the, if Genesis 24 was a timeline, see where we are on that timeline. Understand that all things will come to its conclusion as we've been discussing on Sunday uh, and, and that's why I believe we see a little reference to Ishmael before it's over. Uh, what a wonderful book, and praise the Lord for uh, allowing us to go through it. Let's close in prayer.